This is episode 33 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, October 9th, 2012. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Free as in Freedom. So, uh, Karen, we... Uh we were actually on schedule. Actually? Well, we, we uh, recorded something to make sure that we might not be, or in case we weren't, which we didn't use. Right. Well, have not yet used, uh, I guess. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, we can record a different one today. Right. Well, I don't so. think we'll need to. Okay. Yeah. Pressing on. Okay. But we do have um, some pre-recorded content that we're going to share. So I was at LinuxCon, which I told, sorry. Uh, We're holding the microphone because we forgot the stand, and I was um, tilting the mic back and forth in like TV interviewer that style. That kind of freaked me out. And Bradley didn't like that, so he was holding it too. But I, we don't both need to be holding the microphone. <laughs> I guess that's true. Well, I was afraid I was going to shake it too much, but I don't think it changes the recording, does it? I don't know. I mean, I I did that with um, when I was recording the interviews with um, uh, Adam Dingle. Um, and also with Zach, I, I did that, moving the microphone back and forth, yeah, but and it we're seemed both, to be fine. But we're both closer to the mic now than we usually are when we have a stand. I don't know that that's true. Really? Well, okay. you hunched over towards the mic when you said that, so that <laughs> so, might be true now. Okay. So uh, so I went to LinuxCon, which we mentioned in a previous episode, uh, because we had Matthew Garrett's talk, and now we have Richard Fontana's talk from LinuxCon. So should we comment about it after, or should we That's talk about fine it with now? Me. Okay, it's up to you. Let's, I, I guess let's talk about it a little bit after. Okay, um, I think the talk can stand on its own. It probably can. The, there's some. It, all of Fontana's jokes are on the slides, so if you want to. I was wondering about that. I listened yeah. to it without the slides, um, and it was fine, except for the occasional laughs that I was sort of not sure where they were coming from. Right. So, so <laughs> you may want to look at the slides. Uh, when you're listening to it if you want to get the jokes other than that i think uh, but yeah you can totally follow the talk without looking at the slides that's correct so i'm sorry i'm late uh the uh this talk is is about um the subject of uh how do we decide what is free and open source software, or rather how do um, uh, institutions that are sort of have, have taken on this role decide what is free and open source software? How do they design, decide what the boundaries are and what are some of the, the problems with um, those efforts of defining and applying those definitions? Um, so this is, I think, an, an inherently interesting topic to me. Um, I think it's a practical problem. Um, you know, if we don't, uh, if we don't know what open source means or what free software means, how can we really reason about it and talk about it? So it's inherently interesting and important. Um, so it's practically important because users may prefer uh, to use open source software or to make decisions about what software to use based on its status as open source or free software or not. Um, projects similarly uh, are going to want to know or should know um, whether you know some software component they are using is uh, meets the definition of free software or not for, for for legal reasons for policy reasons, many projects will want to exclude uh, naturally such software that doesn't meet 
such standards. Some will want to confine it. Um, distribution products, for example, may want to confine non-free software to a to a you know separate um, uh, repository or so forth. Um, in recent years, this has become an important public policy issue because um, um, around the world, many agencies are being directed to either um, give equal consideration to open source software when making procurement decisions or actually to give preference to open source software. So that raises uh, in a regulatory context what, what does open source mean and some, you know, a few legislatures and reg regulators have tried to, you know, wrestle with that definition, but most have, have not really done so, but they probably should be thinking about it. Um, organizations like, like Bradley's organization, the Software Freedom Conservancy, may have policies uh, about, um, you know, uh, relating to, to, to such definitions. So, for example, in the Conservancy, as I understand it, Bradley, uh, uh, member projects have to have their software under a license that is both OSI approved and FSF approved. I will assume people know that OSI is Open Source Initiative, FSF is Free Software Foundation. That is correct. Uh, yeah. And, and um, you know, another example, it's a very, very strange, different example, but sort of parallel is, um, you know, there are project hosting sites that have standards in some cases for, for, um, hosting um, open source projects, and they, they sometimes refer to the open source definition. I, I think SourceForge has attempted to do this, but, but in practice, um, of course, if you've ever seen SourceForge, uh, pretty much anything that you could conceive of is up there. So it's not really something that they police, but it's something at least they have as a, as a policy. And finally, corporations um, may have policies around uh, the use of, of open source software. That's becoming increasingly common, and they, they usually don't think about it uh, at, at this level of sophistication, I would say, but they probably should at least. And, and so, it, it, you know, the, the question is raised, you know, for corporations to want to decide, you know, what what kind of software is legitimate for developers and uh, their IT people to use, and what is not legitimate to use. They might they might want to um, think about this issue of fundamental definition. So the usual issue that uh, arises is the edge case because. Because if you think about it, um, it's pretty obvious that a very restrictive binary-only software under a commercial off-the-shelf proprietary software, EULA, is not going to be considered open source or free software by anyone. That's probably pretty obvious. Um, what causes problems, or what has caused problems historically, has been software in this kind of um, borderland where it's you know more restrictive than, than licenses that, uh, un that are under um, terms that have been historically Treated as as free software or open source, but but don't don't quite you know raise questions because they have some strange restrictions or strange conditions or or perhaps some unusual features. Um, the, the the thing that I notice a lot is and this sort of bothers me is, is this quality of deference to authority. So when people do think about this issue at all, they tend to just sort of very uncritically say, well, um, you know, the open source initiative, the OSI has figured this out. They have an open source definition. They apply it. And, you know, that's that. And, you know, sometimes we, it's a little bit more reflective. Um, they'll say, you know, well, there's an open source definition. I don't agree with all of the decisions of the OSI in applying it, but the definition is, is what open source is. So there, it doesn't look a lot of reflectiveness. You know, sometimes people um, view the FSF as the authority, for example, but it's still kind of deferring to their institutional competence uh, without really raising questions. Sometimes people do raise questions or rather justify the, this kind of deference to authority. And just some examples I found, um, there's an organization in the UK called OSS Watch, and they, they recognize that um, uh, there are many definitions of open source and free software, but they've decided that for their advocacy mission, which is uh, use of open source in higher education, 
uh, they're going to treat open source as just the set of 67 or so licenses certified by the OSI. And their justification is that this is a quick way to accept that the code is open and accepted by a large community. And if you've ever seen the list of OSI approved licenses, you'll know that that's ridiculous, but that's what they, they think. Um, when Carl Fogel was appointed to the OSI board last year, he said, uh, I think kind of hinting at this problem, he said, the, the OSI is valuable because it's, it's a single point of authority uh, of reference for the, for the whole community on what open source means. And it's necessary to have such an authority because of this ongoing problem of dilution of what open source means. So it's not that the OSI, I don't know if he really thinks of the OSI as being the, the supreme authority in a normative sense, but rather it's, it serves a valuable role as a single authority because we have lots of different authorities saying what they thought open source was. The collective uh, result of that would be a weakened sense of what open source is and you just, you just get a lot of dilution, which is a problem that many people worry about. Um, an example closer to home is uh, Fedora uh, project I work closely with in my, my day job at, at Red Hat. And uh, so Fedora sort of, uh, this is sort of a policy that, that was established by Tom Calloway, uh, who has been involved with Fedora for a long time. Uh, Fedora um, sort of rejects the OSI as an authority, in a sense, for what licenses are acceptable and uses the FSF as the um, kind of competent uh, definer of what free software means. And so I, I would express the, the Fedora policy as what would RMS do? Uh, basically, they, they take you know what the, the, the FSF has decided, and they've had to kind of build on that tradition, and I've kind of helped with that, of course. Uh, but, but it's kind of grounded in the, in the FSF tradition. So it's not, Fedora doesn't have its own definition of free software. It uses the FSF's definition. Um, yeah, so I always find it disturbing when you give talks and use very old pictures. Of well, no, this is this is this room. is old for a reason, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I meant for a lot of this to be centered. I don't know if this is this is more effective because I kind of messed up with the CSS. Uh, uh, but anyway, so deal with that. Uh, so so Bradley Bradley um, used to talk about this. So, so Bradley actually thought about this more than any other person in the world, and and he used to talk about this rule of rule, what I call the rule of three. So he said that there were three authoritative organizations. Um, Debian, uh, well, FSF, Debian, and OSI, in that order, I guess. And these are the organizations that um, have tried to define what free software or open source is and have tried to apply that definition. And I don't know if you, you meant it in a kind of uh, normative sense or a positive sense or some kind of weird mixture of both. Is this the way things are supposed to be or just the way things are? I, I never, I mean, I think, I think it's probably a mixture of both. Um, yeah, okay, so that, that's useful. I figured that was eventually what you, you kind of, the position you reached. But, um, so, so you kind of see these organizations as exercising this um, legislative and judicial role, which is, uh, you know, in, inherently, you know, that sort of raises a kind of separation of powers problem. But I, I, I think it's um, these are the only organizations that have tried to do this. So it's so, uh, you know, it, it does capture the historical reality. So there's nothing useful about this um, this way of looking at it. It's much more sophisticated than just saying, oh, open source is what what the OSI has decided. Um, now, interestingly, so that's a more recent picture. But so this is why I use the old picture because this is more recently you've kind of changed the rule to a rule of two because you you sort of dropped Debian from uh, the list of authoritative organizations. So see, so this is a very interesting um, statement by Bradley, uh, I think from a couple of years ago. Uh, so you said that um, uh, the best outcome for the community is for the logical conjunction of the OSI's list of approved open source licenses and the FSF's list of approved free software licenses. Uh, that that logical conjunction should be, should be the list that the community accepts for what licenses they should use. Because um, you know, you sort of hint that even though you have a lot of uh, you have a sort of biased interest in, in, in or confidence in the in the FSF, it's better to have more than one organization 
uh, making decisions like this, as long as they're um, non-profit, I guess 501c3 non-profit organizations, so they, they are, uh, in your conception, acting in the public interest so that we can, we can trust them on that level, but it's, it's better to have more than one organization because they can act as sort of checks and balances against each other. I've heard you say that in, in other contexts. Uh, so, you know, that's a useful kind of framework. So, so the FSF was the first uh, to kind of think about this definitional issue, and that's not too surprising. Uh, Richard Stallman, uh, very early on, realized two important things. So, so in 1983, he said, um, you know, I cannot in good conscience sign a software license agreement, but he soon realized that licenses could be useful tools for um, shaping um, what some would later call, you know, commons, or commonses, I guess, of uh, free software. And the other thing that he realized was that the, the natural line that hackers wanted to draw, which was commercial versus non-commercial, was not correct. So he perceived that that free software could be um, largely um, uh, shaped through licensing and could be the basis for a commercial ecosystem, even though he would never use the word ecosystem. So, so today, uh, the, the FSF uh, had a definition of free software going back to 1986, and it was much simpler than, than what you see today. This dates from, uh, this is well-known Four Freedoms of the FSF. It dates from about 1999. I think the date is significant because this was after the, the, uh, the OSI came out with the, well, well take, took the Debian Free Software Guidelines, which is from 97, and then rebranded it as the open source definition. So I think the FSF was sort of, in a sense, competing with, with those two institutions. But the FSF had always been talking about the definition of free software. It just kind of made it a little more elaborate. And this is a, a very compact definition. It, it focuses on legal criteria, you know, what permit kinds of permission that a very high level software has to give you. So they sort of speak of it as, as software giving you these freedoms. Um, there's also technical criteria because source code availability is necessary for two of these freedoms. And there's policy justifications built into this definition. So, so you know, there's a these freedoms are important because it's important to be able to share software with others. So there's a kind of a sort of Mr. Rogers-like neighborliness uh, uh, policy behind some of this. And there's also this kind of um, autonomousness policy, you know, controlling your own computing, which is why you need the ability to run the program for any purpose and to modify it for any purpose. Um, so how has the FSF actually applied this free software definition? So since 1999, and I think Bradley played a role in this, uh, the FSF has maintained a list of uh, what it considers free software licenses and non-free non licenses. It's not a comprehensive list. But um, the list of non-free licenses often contains some rationale, but it's very, very terse, very limited. Uh, but you know, at least some rationale, as I will say, is 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 better than nothing. Uh, the, um, the the definition document actually has many people don't know this. It's supplemented by this um, evolving commentary text, which is very useful. So they 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 don't end with the definition. They say, you know, there's a we've had to apply this definition in practice. And we've learned from our experience of applying this to different, um, you know, sample borderline licenses, and, and these are some of the conclusions we've, we've generalized from that. And they say, they actually give a rule of construction, which you see here. Uh, uh, they say that you know they don't they don't just look at the the take a strict reading of the definition. Um, the definition could be read in like two different ways. You know, in in one sense, it could be read in such a way that um, only public domain software would be free software, but I think what they mean is something else that, that it could be read uh, too strictly in the opposite way. So they say they, they read it expansively, um, and what they're really looking for is unconscionable restrictions. And I think in some ways that should be built into the, the definition, because that's that's kind of the key focus of, of that I have found in kind of thinking about this issue, is what is 
What is an unreasonable restriction in the context of software freedom? I, that's not explicit in their definition, but at least it is explicit in their um, interpretation policy. Um, so I have some criticisms of the FSF. Um, they're, they're not like strong criticisms, but so they, they don't, there's a lot of inconsistency uh, in, in uh, what you can kind of fit together from their decisions about what is a free software license and what is not. And you have to kind of like, uh, if, you, if you analyze it, you can probably kind of say, well, you know, Th this decision can be reconciled with that decision, but it's it's difficult to do so. And I think this is, but this is no different from how um, uh, courts in you know in, in the U.S. and 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 uh, you know Anglo-American countries uh, especially decide law based on cases with fact patterns. So the so cases may not be uh, consistent, but later courts will have to um, uh, find some way of making them consistent if they they believe in precedent. And I think the FSF sort of has its own sense of precedent in, in applying this, these kinds of um, interpretive uh, approaches. Um, so the problem, some problem of inconsistency, the rationale they provide is, is too limited in some cases to be helpful. You know, my favorite example is the, the artistic license 1.0. They say, um, we can't say whether this is a free software license. Uh, some of its passages are too vague and too clever for their own good. And that's, I, I, love, I love that, but I don't, I don't know what it means other than that it's expressing the view that vagueness can be a problem at a certain point. But to know what they actually meant by that in detail, you'd have to dig into history. It's the best compliment Larry ever got that he didn't know was a problem. <laughs> yeah, so, so another issue is, you know, this is actually pretty common uh, outside of the FSF too, is that facts that are external to a license are not really, they're sort of ignored. So there's a kind of um, artificial approach that's taken. So, so an ex historical example is the license of Pine. Um, uh, Pine for a while had a BSD style license and they claimed that, that uh, this license at some point uh, did not give permission to distribute modified versions, even though very similar wording in other licenses had been understood for years to give such permission. Uh, and, and the FSF saw this as a, t as a textual problem, that, that the license didn't say and slash or, it just said and. Uh, it wasn't really a textual problem. The problem was that, that the University of Washington was being a bully and was kind of giving an unreasonable interpretation of a license that, that um, everyone understood in, in, in all the other contexts in which similar licenses were used. So the, so the FSF kind of had a kind of too formalist uh, view of this, and I think that's, that's sort of a problem. Um, there's also a kind of problem of appearance of bias. So the FSF is exercising all these different roles. Uh, they're the steward of the GPL, maintainer of the free software definition, sponsor of the GNU project, and then deciding you know, whether all, all these licenses meet, meet the definition. I think that's a, at least a, shows the appearance of bias. I mean, can you imagine the, the FSF ever saying that uh, a GPL, the GPL would, a version of the GPL would be a non-free license? It's inconceivable. Um, and it's not entirely a, a uh, a theoretical problem. You know, there's a there's a section of GPLv2, section eight, which legitimizes um, the imposition of territorial restrictions uh, for you know patent related reasons. And this may have made some sense to Richard Stallman in 1991. I don't think it makes any sense today, and it may have reflected a misunderstanding uh, of some sort. But I think you know, I would say today that invocation of that provision probably makes a, the GPL non-free. But the G GPLv2, you know, explicitly authorizes this. So I can't conceive of the FSF, you know, sort of reaching that that view, even if they kind of privately agree with it. So on to uh, Debian. So Debian is 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 the uh, second of Bradley's rule of three, and and so there's a Debian social contract that was written by Bruce Perens, who was in, at the time, a uh, leader of the Debian project in 1997. 
so it, the Debian social contract is a very strange document. It says uh, Debian promises to keep uh, Debian free, except for the parts that are not free. And uh, the, the, the social contract incorporates this definition of uh, you know, free software. Uh, and it's called De the Debian Free Software Guidelines. So, um, you know, there's kind of, I always kind of think of this as a sort of double thing, but it's because I didn't really understand the history. Uh, that Debian just sort of decides that, you know, the, the software that is not free under their definition is just not part of Debian, even though they distribute it. Well, it, the history actually makes this clearer. Um, Debian was not originally focused on, on free software in an ideological way. They, their main focus was on being the, the best quality um, distro. They wanted to be a non-commercial distro, sort of modeled on the Linux kernel project, and they wanted to, to be the basis for an ecosystem of downstream commercial redistributors. And so the reason they had these guidelines originally was they had a policy of putting software in, uh, not in main and in non-free to signal to those downstream commercial redistributors that there might be some special problem with certain categories of software. So this was just this was designed to help the commercial redistributors. It wasn't designed to make some kind of statement about philosophy or ideology or 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 um, you know idealism. So it was packaging policy. Now it's not as simple as that because I think Bruce Parents gradually moved towards a view that um, it was important for Debian to stress this this free software ideal, which was a, what important to many Debian participants in the 1990s. And, but I think he saw it as a, as a tactical thing primarily. He saw it as a way that Debian could, could show that it's better than Red Hat and other you know, commercial distributions that existed at the time, not just in terms of quality, but also in terms of, of philosophy. And he thought that it would encourage more free software development, which he valued. But it, again, it's sort of a tactical justification. Um, anyway, in the present day, uh, strangely, the Debian free software guidelines uh, has taken on a life of its own. So I, I think today, I'm an outsider to Debian, but I see the, the Debian free software guidelines as a sort of constitutional document for the Debian community. It's widely understood, or at least widely talked about, and it's sort of something that unifies that community. Um, but I think it came to have a significance beyond what parents had originally uh, intended. And, and that's, a, that's a good thing. So it came to have some sort of commons formation or commons definitional significance that it wasn't originally intended, arguably. <laughs> Um, the, the, the bad side is, is that, um, you know, who gets to interpret these, uh, these guidelines? It's this group of um, elite packagers called the FTP masters, and they, they are the ones who have um, final authority, uh, in a sense, to decide whether something can go into main or has to go into non-free or whatever. And um, so, that, you know, the effect of this is that the Debian free software guidelines are mostly just equivalent to packaging decisions. And you know de the FTP masters usually don't provide rationale for their decisions. Occasionally they do, like with the AGPL v3 issue they did, which was good. But um, usually they don't. And there is a kind of process for review. Um, you can call a vote of the Debian developers, as I understand it. But um, you know, it, basically it's arbitrary power. Although that's no different from the FSF. I mean, Richard Stallman, in a sense, has has arbitrary power to interpret what the free software definition Not is. Personally. Okay, the FSF as, as an institution. So it's, it's really not so, it looks different because Debian is a democratic participatory project, but it's not as different as it seems. Um, well, it's dem because democracy is a last resort. Well, yes, okay, so. The <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so any, I found in working with Fedora, any, any popular distro has this bias towards including packages. And I think, so where, where the FTP masters have been criticized is when they've included software that some people believe should not have been included in, in main because it was not, 
it didn't meet the, the Debian free software guidelines. There's also been some uh, criticism of, Excluding things that were overly strict. Okay, I see. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. Okay, that's interesting. The FDL example. Oh, that's true. Yes, that's a that's 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 very important. I was waiting. But that's 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 actually the most famous example. Yeah. Um. So there's um. I have to mention the Debian legal uh, mailing list because it's this this legendary mailing list, but it it plays some sort of consultative role, but. But I think that the people, as far, I'm again, I'm an outsider of Debian, so this is what I'm observing. Um, I, I don't think it's taken seriously by by Debian developers who are in positions of authority in the project. It's sort of humored. Um, I see. I mean, I subscribe to this list. Uh, I don't know why, but I do. And and it's just sort of because it's interesting. This group of people. <laughs> this group of people is so have said so many interesting things over the years about you know how to map licenses. To the Debian free software guidelines, but but there, much of what they say is not relevant because it doesn't really. Usually, it doesn't shape decisions, uh, at least as far as I can tell, uh, of um, the Debian project as a whole. Well, so Bradley eventually realizes. So so you know he Bradley was very happy when when the FTP masters recognized AGPL as as a free software license. Um, he says after months of confusion. Well, the confusion was the fact that people on Debian Legal were raising uh, questions about whether it was consistent with the Debian Free Software Guidelines. So that's not confusion, that's, that's debate. Um, so, you, you know, this is a triumphant statement. But, but um, less than two years later, you, you, you retreat from this. You say that um, the FTP masters hold a little bit too much power in interpreting the, the DFSG. So you, you now have a rule of two instead of a rule of three. So you caught me saying I was before I was against it before. I was By the way, it, or I was for it before I was against it. Do you like morphing your picture into no, uh, Eric? Not Eric. So so um, that that brings us to the OSI. So so um, so the OSI has very strange origins. So so in February 1998, um, Eric Raymond, uh, who at the time was an influential uh, thinker uh, of some sort. Um, uh, decided to, that we, we should all stop talking about free software and, and, and start talking about open source. It was fantastically successful in a way as a rebranding exercise. Um, but the original idea behind the open source definition, he was working with Bruce Perrins on this, was that they would take the Debian free software guidelines and just take out the Debian specific stuff and that would become a set of trademark conditions. That's, a, that's really bizarre. I have not known this before kind of researching this, but they, they originally, I mean, I knew that they tried to um, uh, register open source as a trademark or something of that sort and didn't really succeed. But, but they originally saw it as a kind of trademark um, protection issue, that they, they, would, they would use an open source definition to protect the integrity of what open source meant. Um, so, so the open source definition is very important to the OSI if you go by what it says officially. So, um, uh, you know, it's always been kind of critical to its mission of, uh, you know, protecting what open source means. They have described it as the gold standard of open source licensing. They're very, they think it's, it's, it's very successful uh, in sort of uh, shaping what people think of as open source. And in some sense it has been because many people refer to it as the authoritative definition of open source. I don't know if they've actually read it. But um, there's, it's a very strange thing because um, the Debian free software guidelines and, and the history behind it should make this clear. Um, it's very specific to the problems that a 1990s Linux distribution would face if it wanted to kind of distinguish, um, you know, strange licenses from non-strange licenses for the purpose of aiding downstream commercial redistributors. So it's there, a lot of the provisions uh, can't be really understood fully unless you know that. 
and yet they, they were just kind of reused as a kind of part of a general definition of what open source was. So it's, it's a very inappropriate definition in many respects. I mean, some of it works, some of it's just very strange because it talks a lot about, you know, distribution of, of packages together on a medium. And a lot, I mean, it's not that this doesn't necessarily make sense, but it's very much, you know, it's, it's, a, de it's a definition for a distro. It's not a definition for open source in general. Um, so I think they just must have, they, you know, they, they had a quick need to come up with a definition and they had something ready-made in the Debian free software guidelines. Um, you know, there's some improvement. So the, the source code provision is much more detailed than what's in the, the DFSG and it borrows from things that the FSF had said about, you know, the definition of source code in, in GPLv2, section three. Um, so a much more precise definition of source code. And they did amend it actually in, in um, 2004. There, uh, they added an amendment uh, specifying uh, that you know, click wrap licenses, uh, the licenses that, that require downstream redistributors to impose GUI-based click wrap, click wrap um, requirements were not acceptable. So it has been amended once. The um, certification process is uh, uh, something that's, that the OSI has, has publicized, and it's, it's, uh, it's different from what you see in the FSF and with Debian. It's, it's uh, a process that, that has, um, you know, a role is officially played by um, discussion on a public mailing list, discussion that's basically open to everyone except for, like, arch trolls. And, um, you know, then the OSI board decides whether to certify a license as open source or not. And that, that decision is not, um, you know, th there's no requirement to provide rationale, but, but there, you know, there, there's evidence that the OSI board has taken the mailing list discussions into account seriously in deciding whether licenses meet the definition or not. And it's actually not fully clear they apply the definition. It's just sort of implied that, that because they mention the open source definition so much in their kind of uh, materials on their website and so forth, that this is, must be what they do. But I, I suspect that they're not really looking closely at the open source definition because, uh, as I've said, it's a very strange document. Um, so so the, the OSI um, faced a lot of problems during its, its history. Um, so pretty early on, it was accused of uh, causing a problem of license proliferation. We, we, we associate this with the OSI today. Um, this, is, this is a consequence of its orientation towards you know, businesses and trying to get businesses to adopt open source. So what they found was that businesses were very enthusiastic in the late 90s and early 2000s, but they wanted to do what Netscape had done. They wanted to write their own licenses. So um, this was not discouraged. So they ended up um, approving a lot of licenses. Some of them were, were seemed to be approved in haste. Um, and at the time, the FSF actually played a kind of dissenting role uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, so Richard Stallman, in this period, wrote a bunch of essays on some of the licenses, the corporate licenses, that were being submitted to the OSI at the time. And, and, and these are like dissenting opinions, pointing out problems that the OSI had overlooked. Because in many cases, these were licenses that, that the OSI decided to approve without much explanation. And the other problem was um, this problem of vanity licenses. So licenses that were otherwise not harmful in any sense, but were, were just kind of, there was no particular reason for them. They were often just like taking the Mozilla public license and just changing Mozilla to some name of some company. Um, so I, the irony there is that OSI was actually the one that originally called attention to the problem of license proliferation. They may have actually coined the term, I think, um, in 1998. They thought that businesses would be very concerned about a, the fact that in, in typical free software, large-scale free software projects, you see tons and tons of licenses, and, and, and that this, they, they thought that this would scare businesses away. Uh, in fact, it's sort of ironic because today, I mean, typical proprietary software is built in part out of uh, open source components, 
And it's very common uh, to, to see um, proprietary software being based on, uh, you know, on, on a multiplicity of licenses. So the, the um, big problem uh, for the OSI was in the year 2007, and it's what I call the, the badgeware crisis. So, so the OSI's authority was already um, in question, and it was tested further at this time, because at this time, it's hard to, to remember today, but, but open source was a valuable label uh, for software companies to use, even when it didn't bear much relation to what their products were actually about. Something maybe akin to the way cloud is being used today. It sort of was, was sort of starting to lose all meaning because it was, it was so valuable for startups to kind of market themselves as being open source companies. So this caused a problem. Um, a bunch of companies were using, for example, the Mozilla Public License with an appendix. The interesting thing about this is that um, these companies actually fought back. And as dastardly as these companies were, I sort of admire them for fighting back because they were challenging this idea that we should just defer to the, to the OSI as being authoritative. So you know, this is, this is uh, Michael Tiemann, who was president of the OSI at the time and who's, who's also at Red Hat. Uh, he, Tiemann argued that you know, only the OSI is the, is the authoritative arbiter of what the open source definition means. We can't let any arbitrary vendor have its own opinion on what the, OS, the open source definition means. Um, so they don't have an equal right to define what open source is. And that's, there's something, you know, that, I think that was probably the wrong thing to say because it, it sounds kind of offensive. And I, I think Tiemann sort of analogized this to science and, and it, isn't, it isn't science. I mean, the, the open source initiative came into being because, it, because a bunch of people established it and they decided to adopt this definition. It wasn't like, like this, this definition came out of some scientific process. Um, oh, there's Bradley again. So, so, uh, yeah, this is like the most photos of Bradley I've had in any presentation. So, uh, uh, oh, so many years later, um, the OSI, this is in a way a consequence of this era. Uh, years later, actually, the past year, the OSI has started to talk about um, fundamental changes to governance, and they talked about having a membership structure. Actually, I'm a, I'm a dues-paying individual member of the OSI. I know that may disturb you, but I'm, I'm a proud, proud member. So, so uh, this is largely, I think, um, uh, uh, Simon Phipps's influence, who's now the president of the, uh, the OSI. But Bradley recently said, you know, I can't trust the OSI's license list anymore, as if you ever did, um, right? So, so, you're, so Bradley's criticizing the, this I idea. I trust of, it in the, in the conjunction anymore. Well, okay. Have you changed the SFC policy? Mm. Not yet. Not yet. So, um, you know, Bradley's concern is actually a legitimate concern. I mean, I think it's, it's premature because we don't know how, um, how this membership structure is going to work. How is an elected board uh, going to be used in license approval decisions? Uh, so, you know, the, the concern is that they that members can just buy votes on the, the board and, and sort of vote in licenses they want and vote out licenses that, that Bradley likes. So Bradley, you mentioned the, right, the, the specter of them voting off AGPLv3 or adding non-OSD compliant licenses. The, the, the irony is that they did add, early on in their history, a, a bunch of OSD, arguably OSD non-compliant licenses. And as for AGPLv3, I mean, the OSI actually rubber-stamped the GPLv3 license family because they sort of, it, at the time, it was sort of unthinkable for them to, to, to even really debate the issue. You're wrong now, AGPL. Okay, maybe I, I, don't, uh, I don't remember. I, with GPLv3 and LGPLv3, they certainly kind of basically rubber-stamped them. Um, which is not to say that I, I don't think that they don't meet those definitions, but just saying that they didn't engage in any real debate over them. So two, um, two uh, problems with the OSI, even to this day, uh, that I see are this um, 
tendency to favor what they call popular licenses or licenses that are, uh, have strong communities, um, which is kind of a license standardization effort. And if it were if it were expressed as such, I think it would be non-problematic because I, I I actually support this as well. This is a this is a response to the proliferation problem. And the other issue is this issue of inconsistency, which we've seen with, with FSF and Debian in different respects uh, too. Um, so that's Larry Rosen, who was a critic of of this idea of popular licenses because his licenses were not on the popular list. And and actually, Larry Rosen started out as, um, uh, I think, executive director of the OSI. So he has a history with this organization. Uh, anyway, so, so um, this was uh, the OSI's solution to the problem of proliferation is to kind of have certain favored licenses that would be recommended because they were popular and widely used or with strong communities. And in 2012, this list was kind of mo uh, slightly updated to uh, what you see here. Um, and, and Larry Rosen raised the concern about that this was suggestive of cronyism. He used the term cronyism because if you look at the membership of the OSI board today, there are people from organizations that are closely associated with some of these licenses. So there's a representative of Mozilla, there's a representative of Eclipse, there's a representative of Apache. And um, it, you know, it, 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 this is just the same list with some minor changes uh, from what they had in 2006 when they first came up with this popular license list. But, uh, yeah. Your, your gym skills need work. You still have part of KFC's head in there. Really? Yeah. See it? No, I don't. Okay, it's still in there. That I just, you took this from the picture you took with KFC and you cut KFC out, didn't you? No, no, this is, this is like, this is Wikipedia. Oh, okay. Photo. Well, they, they have, they, they didn't, she, she's been gimped out of that. That's photo. fascinating. Um, so, I mean, my, my issue here is that this, this um, emphasis on popularity, so the problem is, is that the OSI still doesn't distinguish between um, OSI approved and what open source is in a general sense. So they, they insist that OSI approved means open source, I think. And so this view that the, that people should use these popular licenses, it discourages um, experimentation with, with uh, new licenses. I mean, eventually we're, we're going to need some new licenses, I think. And it rewards um, entrenched interests in open source. So I mean, these kind of, I mean, you can expect what will happen when Apache uh, drafts Apache License 3.0 is it's going to be pretty much accepted uh, without much debate because it's it's one of these established organizations that already has an established place in this popular license list. Um, so it's kind of I mean this is a terrible analogy in a sense, but it reminds me of the immigration quotas that the U.S. imposed in the 1920s. It sort of it freezes in place what was popular at a certain time, arguably. Um, I mean, I, and apologies to the ex-Sun lawyers in the room. I'm not even sure why Cuddle. Uh, should be on that list. And in any case, Oracle has updated Cuddle to a 1.1, and uh, for some reason, uh, MPL 2.0 is updated, but Cuddle is not updated. So this is a problematic list. Anyway, um, the, the issue of inconsistency. Uh, so uh, the, a good example of this that occurred somewhat recently. In uh, 2009, Carlo Piana, on behalf of a client, submitted a license for OSI approval uh, for an organization that was involved in some kind of MPEG standardization effort, it was, uh, so it came up, it wanted a license, an open source approved license for their reference implementation. And they wanted to use the MPL, but they didn't like the patent license, um, perhaps partly related to um, their obligations under the relevant um, standards agreement. Um, but for whatever reason, they didn't want a patent license. So Carlo Piana said, well, you have to have a patent license if you want to get approval to be likely. So they, they the client said, um, Okay, so we'll give a patent license for source distribution and for non-commercial internal use. And 
when this was discussed on the OSI's mailing list, it met with very strong opposition. And, and really for the first time uh, that I had really noticed, the, people participating in, th in this kind of discussion would actually look at the open source definition and say, well, look at this, this section seven or plank seven says, you know, no, um, what does it say? No execution of an additional license shall be required. This was, again, from the Debian free software guidelines and it's sort of, in a sense, taken out of context. But, but they said, the suggestion was that, you know, if you have to potentially, um, uh, separately agree to a patent license from the distributor of the software, that that's, uh, that doesn't, that's not consistent with the open source definition. Um, a few years later, with the encouragement of the OSI, CC0 is submitted for OSI approval. And CC0 has this provision in it. it turns out later on, Creative Commons put this in because um, the target community for CC0 wanted it in. It was a scientific data community. They wanted a, to make it clear that CC0 was a copyright-related um, instrument and, and wasn't something that would give up any patent rights. So they deliberately put in this, this provision that says no patent rights are being granted. And the... Um, you know, the, the initial discussion about CC0 on, on um, the OSI's mailing list was, was quite positive. And, and uh, I played a certain role in kind of raising some, some questions about this because I, I was aware of the inconsistency. That if, what was the difference between, why was the MXM license bad but CC0 was acceptable? And, and you know, I, I didn't say this myself, but Carlo Piana actually did suggest that, you know, it seemed like the only difference was what he called ad personam which, you know, means that it's, it's the identity of the entity that's submitting the license. So, you know, Creative Commons has something in common with some of the institutions that are represented on the current OSI board. It's this well-respected institution in free culture. I don't know what organization this was uh, that was behind MXM, but it was at least neutrally regarded, if not disfavored. Um, so a little time left. The, this the last part of my arguments, uh, or my discussion, is, is that one of the recent developments is this idea, very different from what I've been discussing. It's come, it's not, well, it's partially coming from people associated with the OSI. Um, this idea that, that licenses are not sufficient. Thank you. Um, so, uh, this is often expressed in, as suggesting that the, the definition of open source should be expanded or actually, in a sense, made more precise to take into account the norms of present day community development models. So, um, you know, it's not enough to just have source code available under an open source license. What matters is how it's made available. Is there a public source code repository? Uh, is, uh, you know, is it possible to submit a patch? Uh, is there a process in place? Is there, is there transparency? So, so this actually is, in a sense, a, a, this descends from the rhetoric of uh, Eric Raymond and the, o, the original OSI about how open source is all about peer review and transparent process. Um, and it also really kind of it ties into the old requirement for source code availability. What does source code availability really mean today? Um, so this is Andy Oliver, who was on the OSI board uh, before 2012, and he came while he was on the board. He came up with something called the patch test. He said that you know if there's no way to submit a well-formed patch um, so that it could potentially be incorporated by a project in some kind of transparent fashion, it's just not open source yet. It becomes the software becomes open source when someone decides to take the software and fork it. So it's potentially open source. And this is closely related to something that Simon Phipps, who is now the president of the OSI, uh, was talking about um, you know, a year or so ago, uh, what he called open by rule. And he, he, I think he originally may have conceived of it as a kind of expansion of, of the criteria for what made something uh, free software or open source. But basically it was, it was sort of suggesting that you know, licenses are not good enough, even mere source code availability is not good enough, the ability to fork is key to software freedom, but it can't just be based on um, 
uh, legal criteria alone or even mere source code availability. What matters is how much you can trust the project. So is the, is the project diverse? Is the project transparent in its actions? Are, is the project using a license that has uh, uh, commercial entities uh, giving patent licenses. These are things that Simon Phipps talked about. So um, I don't agree with all of that, but I think it, this is a very interesting idea. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, this is, I have some tentative conclusions or at least concluding comments. Um, so I think that this, this kind of historical tendency to kind of defer to authority is problematic because these institutions have problems of, of accountability and transparency. They've kind of just assumed authority for themselves. And I think people should be questioning the basis of that authority. You know, much as those dastardly um, Badger companies did in 2007, I think the, the uh, free software and open source development community should be raising questions about legitimacy of these communities. They should be demand, demanding more accountability. Um, I think the FSF could learn from the OSI and have a, have a more participatory approach to the license uh, approval process that they do. I think the OSI should get rid of the open source definition and, and adopt something like the, the free software definition, which is far more appropriate than um, the, the legacy Debian free software guidelines, which is the which forms the basis of the open source definition. Um, I think a key thing is that these, these institutions that are defining and then applying these definitions should be providing rationale for their decisions. They don't, they don't provide any explanation generally for why they reach their decisions. I mean, the FSF does the best job here, but, but certainly, you know, Debian really doesn't and, and the OSI has never really done so. And, you know, this is similar to the concept of, of um, courts providing um, rationale for their court decisions. Right. So, um, I, I do think that the idea of open development criteria, that, that last subject I mentioned, is, is useful. Um, I don't exactly know how practical it is to do that because, because there are many projects that, you know, there, there might be single developer projects, um, very small projects. I'm not sure that all of the criteria that, say, Simon Phipps was talking about um, is really relevant for those kinds of projects. But certainly for large-scale projects, this is a very important issue. And, and I think it's the, the, the intuitions there are, are correct, that merely relying on license terms, merely relying on source code availability in the abstract is not enough um, for many projects to, to feel that, uh, confident that you have software freedom. I think that's, that's an intuition that more and more people are correctly coming to. And another final note is that um, I think that projects can work together. Uh, I'm supposed to stop, so I'm just going to finish this final point. Uh, projects can work together in developing these definitions and policing them. I've seen this happen um, with Linux distros because Fedora has worked with OpenSUSE and they kind of shared opinions on you know, why, they, why they view licenses in certain ways. They, they, um, so distros can work together. Fedora has worked with Debian on some issues. Um, and I think distros are in a kind of unique role of kind of playing this policing role because they can pressure upstream projects to change their licenses in some cases. So I think that's, a, that's something that can be generalized and can, can um, be the basis for um, uh, more participatory activity in, in kind of policing these definitions and coming up with definitions in the first place and refining. And uh, that is it. So thank you very much. Now it's time for... So I think actually a lot of that content we've we've covered in on older episodes. 
Yeah, and uh, he didn't actually. He was he was giving conservancy credit for this this rule of two or whatever. But actually, that was the rule of two uh, using Fontana's terminology was actually what you came up with. I know. I was I was wondering if I was going to say anything about that. That. Uh that well, really? I, I can say something about it because I know that I know that you came up with it and you you made it conservancy's rule, which I is where I got it from. It's just a, you know I don't think it, it's not. I, I definitely will take credit for it because that was my idea, but it, I don't really think that it's so interesting. Really, it's very to me. It seems like a really obvious solution. We have various bodies that are designating licenses as free or open source. Um, as the case may be. And, um, you know, since we have those bodies, the, you know, the intersection of, of where they approve licenses makes a lot of sense. Well, Fontana's, I, I think, yeah, I think you're correct that he's not raising anything that's not really obviously there if you studied. I think his point might be that very few people are trying to look at that question and decide. I think people, I, and I, I find this when I talk to people in the free software community, they believe that actually there's some, there's some formalistic way you can tell if a license is free or, or free software or open source. What do you mean? That like there's some set of rules you can apply and they but just there, apply. There are. But you just apply them in sort of a rote kind of way that there's no judgment involved. Oh, oh I, I think see. a lot of people oh, believe that you can make these determinations without any judgment. Right. That you can just use some sort of algorithm that you apply. Right. Well, this actually, we talked about this in one of the very first Software Freedom Law Show episodes, believe it or not. Oh, yeah? We did. We talked Which about- Which episode number? <laughs> I have no idea. But we did, we talked about this whole like legal determination. Um, and this is very, and you know, and how there's a judgment call and how there's sometimes a disconnect um, from a developer mentality where you sort of want to run some tests um, and, and, you know- where lawyers always say it depends there's a reason for that and it's because of this judgment call issue that you're talking about so you know i mean i, I think that's a, a reasonable expectation in a way but with all these things it, it 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 really does come down to that i'm a little sleep deprived so i'm i realize i just said the same thing twice so i i, well, <laughs> I, I should I should a little diverge just a second to say i did have my baby and it's all everybody's you know every, everything's healthy um and um and everything is well i just haven't been getting much sleep so i apologize for that little weird diversion so i so i <laughs> I, I have a few places where i think fontana left out certain details so I, I think, for example, when he talked about De about this whole De the history of Debian and that the Debian policies were written for the problems of a free software distribution mm. or of a, of a GNU Linux distribution in the early '90s or something like that, I, he's left out the fact that's something he knows. So, so I'm going to say that the comment was disingenuous, using that using that that dangerous word because Fontana knows well that the FSF actually started Debian. Uh, that, that, that Ian was, Murdoch was funded by FSF and it was going to be a 100% free software distribution. And the stuff he's talking about came later under basically Bruce, the Bruce Perrin's reign of mm -hmm. Debian. But the history is more complicated than that. I, I think his point might be accurate in that by the time the Debian free software guidelines were written, the issues of distributions were influencing it. But that's not all of Debian's history. Debian has a strong culture of, wanting to shun free software, um, which has waned and, and increased depending on sometimes who the Debian project leader is and so forth. Like right now with Zach being Debian project leader, there's a very strong only free software slant to Debian, I think, than there was under other Debian project leaders. But generally speaking, Debian's always been very 
pro free software want it not really wanting to have yeah. non-free they live with it for various reasons but it's it's never been something they likes to deal mm -hmm. with um, it's fascinating how uh, most free software projects go through those cycles depending on you know who's who has leadership positions is that really is that true i think so okay I don't want to call anybody out specifically. <laughs> yeah, I guess it could be true. I, I think I think it's more obvious with a distribution because there's um, there's so many voices in a distribution. Yeah, I, I guess I should have said project. large projects. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and plus, plus the distributors are often like, making editorial. It's an editorial decision, and then the free software decision becomes part of the editorial decision. I, th I think Fantana like has I that part. Like I can say right. about GNOME, since I'm you know that GNOME has had different you know different cycles of being focused on freedom and focused on commercial viability. Um, and I think that, you know, has come and gone over the years and probably will continue to do so. Mm. But while people who are, you know, very involved are passionate about freedom, you know, that takes a different, a different stance. So, um, so, so Fontana actually, so the part that the rule of three, I think was properly credited to me. I think the rule of two should have been credited to you. The rule of three that well, Fontana talked about may have been credit, probably credited to me, but are you sure? I don't know. Did you come up with, I, I, I we, cause I remember us talking about that at the time. And I remember you, I actually, I was still kind of new back then. And I remember Noob. you, <laughs> I remember you telling me, um, I didn't know the deal at that point about the Debian FTP masters. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually didn't realize that that's how decisions were effectively made in the end. And you explained that to me, but I was already on Debian legal and I was really focused on that at that point. So I, I don't know. I can't remember exactly. So you should have given this talk. The rule of three may actually have been me, but not entirely correct is I guess what I'm saying. Oh, but the, the, the point that Fontana makes where I basically changed my position. He, right. he caught me in this sort of right, a John, right, right, John, right. I said it in the audience, you might not have been able to hear it. That he caught me in it. A, a John Kerry kind of moment that, that basically I was, I, w I was for having Debian in the, in the group before I was against having Debian in the group. Uh, which I, I the reason I struggle with it is two reasons. One is the FTP masters problem, mm -hmm. which I think has gotten better. But the second one is, is they don't really have a list. And actually of all things, and I'm surprised right. we were going to add, I think there was one point where we were going to try to push them to make a list. I've talked to Zach about yeah. it actually. And Zach looked into it. He did some work in this regard. It didn't, it didn't get very far, but there was an update to the page with all those licenses mm. on it at one point during Zach's uh, administration. But, uh, well, it's, he's a, he's an elected official. I mean, what, I, that's the right word, isn't it? I don't know. He's elected official. He's, he's in charge. He's the president or his leader, but he's dear leader. Is it an whatever. administration? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what you say about any, anybody who's elected, right? Anybody's elected who's in charge? I mean, Maybe. that's what they say about the president, or right? But he's got a, He's part of the administrative body. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think I think Zach is the administrative body of Debian. Okay. He's not. He's not the electorate. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, not know. that they have a division of power. Why well, they kind of do? That it's not written this in that. Well, way. anyway, anyway. The branches of Debian government. Well, Debian has <laughs> a constitution. There are, yeah. There is a constitution. There is a, a parallel to be made. Well, yeah. So I, I think, uh, and actually it was Ben um, Hutchings in the audience who, who I, you might not have been able to hear this in recording, who said that it's democracy is the last resort in Debian, which basically means that things only go to vote when there's just great contention, like like with FDL, which which came up during the discussion, where, where there was this great sort of fight over FDL. 
um, in, in, in whether Debian was going to allow the invariant sections from the FSF and, and all that sort of thing that, that actually ended up going to vote because it was something the FTP masters, I think, didn't feel that they had the authority to decide without the electorate having right. a chance to say something. Right. So, uh, so I, I mean, I, I think, I, I think Fontana didn't cover that as much. I, mean, I actually was surprised that he didn't have it on a slide and Ben brought it up from the audience basically is, is how, it, how it got discussed. So, um, I just want to note that I was right about that photo that indeed the photo of Larry Rosen that is on Wikipedia. I didn't see the slides. And I haven't looked at Wikipedia, but I know exactly the photo. Yes, you're I think you know that photo too, <laughs> because it's a photo of him with Karen Copenhaver. Yes. And Karen Copenhaver has been sh uh, gimped out, or, or Photoshop probably gimped if it was a free software person, or Photoshop if it wasn't, out of the photo. And you can still see a little tiny bit of her head. And, and Fontana's right, it is the picture from Wikipedia, which is where he got it from. Right. I thought Fontana had actually taken Karen Copenhaver out of the picture, but he actually got it from Wikipedia and somebody else did it. That's so funny. By the way, um, our listeners will be amused to know that I am, I am often confused for Karen Copenhaver. Um, because there, I think there just aren't that many women, especially, and she's a lawyer and, uh, she has the same first name as me. But at one event, um, I don't remember, I may have been an old Linux con actually. At one event, somebody came over to me and said, hi, you must be Karen Carpenter. <laughs> 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 and I said, nope, but I think I know who you mean. And let me introduce you. <laughs> um, yeah, for our, our non-US listeners, Karen Carpenter was, was a, was a, uh, a relatively famous singer in the 70s, um, a part of a group called the Carpenters, which was a, a, a brother and uh, sister group that sang very, very easy listening songs. Yep. <laughs> so that was, I, I just realized that outside the US, people might not have any idea who Karen Carpenter is. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, so the, the other thing I want to mention, I, this thing from Andy Oliver that he mentioned, I actually hadn't heard about before this idea of, can you submit a patch? And I think what he's getting to, which is actually the most important and interesting part from my point of view is that just knowing what the license is, isn't a determinative factor of whether it's a healthy free software project. And I think, Finally, the community is starting to realize that. It took me a long time to realize that. I used to think that oh, if the license fine, it's all is fine. Mm -hmm. And, but, but I think it's a, it's a separate issue. I don't think we should write that into these definitions. We shouldn't write in health of the community into the definition. I think the definition no, is supposed to be the be narrow. Too, that would, that would actually really take us down a bad path on that judgment. You yeah. know, it, it just doesn't work. But this idea of, of having certain tests to, of, for the health of the community, I know, um, Tom Calloway of, of Fedora, who, who, uh, Fontana works with, um, wrote up a, he wrote up kind of like, a, it's kind of like a purity test, but written for free software to like give yourself this many points if you have to do this in your project to get oh, a badge. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mostly done for humor. Um, I mean, I, the, the scale is not accurate. It's just random points that he made up. But Andy Oliver is kind of getting to that with this patch test that, that, um, that Fontana mentioned. If you can't get a patch into a project, is it a healthy free software project? Right. Like how, like if it's so many bars, so many hoops to jump through to get a patch in, maybe it's not really a free software project, not in the way we think of them, even if its license is a free software license. Right. I guess the code could be free even if the project might. Right. And, yeah. and, and that's sort of a question of forking. And, and RMS, I know, takes this attitude very clearly that if any moment he looks at it at discrete moments, where if you say, if I could fork this right now right. and have all the freedoms, it's free software. And that's all you have to think about. Right. At any given moment, you look at the code that you have in your hands and that's what's determinative. Right. And it's, it's a reasonable way of looking at it. But yep. I think, I think it, it, there are other factors that make it difficult for free software projects to succeed and be healthy because there is a big. Well, yeah. I mean, there just are a lot of factors wrapped up in that. 
you know, like what makes a project successful is different than whether it's free or not. But, um, but I actually, since you brought that up, I wasn't going to mention it, but, um, but I did, I was kind of surprised about how, um, Fontana referred to, you know, what would RMS do as being the, um, you know, the, the whole, um, thing behind the FSF approved, you well, know, I free list. Him on that. I you did, you I was... did. I was really surprised about, and I was really was really glad that you chimed in with the whole, um, you know, with saying it's not RMS, it's the organization. Um, and I got the, you know, and I, I, I get that Fontana is critical of giving that kind of power to different organizations, but I think that really makes a lot of sense. Like having trusted organizations, especially, you know, ones with good, I mean, this goes back to the copyright assignment question and some of the things that we talked about there. Like if you have a, if you have a good nonprofit organization with good governance, then, you know, delegating that kind of responsibility to an organization like that makes a lot of sense. And I don't think that that's necessarily something to be that critical of. I mean, you could evaluate whether the FSF has that kind of governance. I don't know, but you'd have to really talk about that. But that's doesn't that's not the question that he's he's mentioning, right? And and he he talks about it in in, in very lawyer legalistic terms of of precedents and decisions and dicta and and these sorts of things that we get from courts. Well, there aren't any courts that are going to give us these kind of decisions for this issue. It's just not a important enough issue to take into a court and have a case over. Like well, like he said, it was free software, and it's not. And two people sue each other over whether it's free software. And a court actually decides, which which it just doesn't make any well, sense. That I would mean, happen. that'll happen over time, but it will be specific small pieces of, and it'll be specific know. to a specific license. It's not like they're going to decide right, what exactly, is or is not free exactly. in in a, in a sense some some aesthetic sense of what what the free four freedoms are and right. whether you got them. Oh, oh yeah, of course. But I'd but, be surprised if over time we don't see some of those things tested. So, but but I think it, I think if he wants some sort of entities to be able to do that, it's going to be charities and nonprofits that are deciding this in our community. I don't know who else could step forward to do it. Everybody else has too many conflicts of interest. Um, but I don't think it's problematic to outsource that kind that analysis. In fact, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I, I mean, that, that, that was just one thing that I sort of objected to in the beginning of this talk was the casting doubt on whether or not that's a reasonable thing to do. And it's just that it's so difficult to evaluate all of these licenses why not have, you know, a trusted entity that you make sure stays trusted and has the skills and the resources to evaluate these licenses? Otherwise, it's just too hard. Well, and the part that he doesn't mention, and, and, and I think he actually should have mentioned it, um, because, because it, it's useful. And also, I think it informs some of what he's saying is that he's done a lot of work with Spot and other people in Fedora to build the Fedora license list, which, which defers sometimes to FSF, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and, and they, and that's actually a very good list. And I like that list. I don't have any objections to it. I actually, frankly, think it's better than Debian's list now because Debian's list is not as complete. Mm -hmm. Um, but, on the other hand, it's a list published by Red Hat, effectively, um, yep. of of licenses that that Fontana and and Spot have evaluated, right. um, and they ask the FSF, and that's great, and they make they make sure that they're not in conflict with the FSF when when they make decisions and so forth, and that's all useful. But I, I mean, I think that that's there's nothing wrong with having that check and balance out there. No, um, that's great. I mean, honestly, if there were other sources that were you know other lists that were well maintained and could be counted on in that way. We would have probably have used those when we were coming up with Conservancy's policy. Actually, it wasn't for Conservancy that we were originally coming up with that. It was for something else. Yeah, um, but Conservancy ultimately used it. It's probably the most it. well-known user of that rule. I yes, think. Yes, but we imported it to Conservancy because yeah. I used it in something, or we used it in something else. Um, so I just thought I should point that out. But um, 
But, it, you know, the, so that's the thing. But the thing we agonized over when we came up with that rule of two, as Fontana likes to say, uh, was that, you know, what if the FSF or the OSI has their list go stale? And we put in a lot of tortured language at the time. I can't remember. We then reevaluated it. But it's like, still there. But it's still problematic. And so if you have a lot of different organizations making a lot of lists, you know, you can rely on them. But over time, some of them will go stale. Yeah, well, Conservancy takes the authority back, basically, in that situation. That's right. We had like a period of time that we had. If yeah, it and it's, that's all that, all that text that you wrote still there, still okay. there as, as our... In, in the contracts we use where we say free software, because one of, one of the things that this actually was written for that Conservancy does is, is when we write uh, both copyright assignment contracts and also um, uh, employment contracts now, we actually have that in there to assure whoever we're contracting with that we're going to keep it free software, basically a promise on the, on our side. Right, that we, right, right. right. We ah, yes, I remember. I was right. involved in that too. We right. yeah, any, basically, anytime Conservancy, yeah. any, any sequence of events that cause Conservancy to have copyright, we put that language in. Um, if the, if, and if the, um, if the contractor keeps copyright, we just have them license to us under a license that we approve and then it all works out. But, um, anyway, so, um, I, I mean, I think, I think that, I mean, I thought it was good as an FSF director. I was glad that, that Fontana said FSF's doing, at the end, he said FSF's doing the best job at this. Mm -hmm. Um, he said one thing he asked for that I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to. Um, and this is, it's going to sound like a whiny nonprofit thing. So I'm warning you ahead of time. He asked for, well, we want more detailed explanation like these essays that RMS used to write about the Apple license and all the stuff. We used to have all this explanation of why it was non-free. Um, that's a lot of work and it's hard yep. for nonprofits to do that work. And, and I, I, I know, we sometimes so get whiny hard. about getting donations, yeah. but, but I mean, for FSF to do that, that's, that's, a, that's an investment. I mean, you're looking at, at, at certainly turning attention of, of a staffer for a week to something. Uh, and, and that's, that's a lot for a, a org that has just, I mean, like you can't, uh, those things are complicated and they need to be reviewed by a lot of people. And, you know, you can't just send something like that out without a good amount of thought, writing and review and revision. Yeah. So I, I would be shocked if you could get something like that out in a week. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it's true. I mean, we've been in an email thread. The FSF directors have been in an email thread for, uh, three weeks now about a, a weird license that we're discussing what FSF's belief of free or non-freeness of it is. The entire board of directors is involved. It's going to go back to, it's going to get remanded back to the staff once we come to a decision to write something up. And I mean, it's going to be complicated. And it's, it's, it's not a common license, but this kind of situations happens every six months where we run across a license. And obviously everybody sends them to FSF, right? Because where else do they send them? When somebody encounters a weird license, it ends up in FSF's licensing queue. And OSI. Uh, I suppose it ends up well. Well, I think it also it often also winds up in OSI. Well, I think Fontana's point about OSI is a good one because OSI is generally used as a place to promote licenses. I don't think people discover. I've never seen a situation. If somebody wants to point me to something on the OSI list where someone discovered a license in code that was already being circulated around and then submitted it to OSI for I OSI approval. I would be surprised approval. if that never happened. I've never seen it happen because people want to say, "Our, you know, all the software I'm using is OSI approved. It's bona fide well, companies open source." Want to say that? They but do. They and usually have the their own license. Would, well, but no, they don't. They you mean they normally have their own counsel? Their own council and their own license. A lot of times they have their own license. I mean, this was, this was OSI's point. This was a fun time's point about OSI. They sometimes have their own license they put forward. No, right. But what I'm saying is that, you know, with the popularity of, of, you know, murders and acquisitions and that kind of analysis over the software that you're using, I, you know, I would have been surprised if people didn't, you know, want the pieces of the software that they were using to be all OSI approved. 
Well, I, I, cer- I certainly know the licenses that I've looked at at FSAF will often have not ended up in front of front of OSI. Right. But of course, OSI hasn't existed that, uh, that long. <laughs> I mean, from my point of view, because FSAF's been evaluating these licenses since well, the 90s. Well, and OSI has gone through periods of being active and less active. Right, and that's 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 an issue too, because there was a lot of licenses lost in the queue. When- well, this is why we wound up struggling over the language um, in that you know, that contractual language, just because you know we we learned the hard way already that you know, you can't necessarily count on these kinds of organizations to keep their lists current. So you need to be sure to have some way out. Yeah. So, um, so I, I think there should be more written about this issue. Uh, I think Fontana could do it. He has a forum. Uh, he's, he's able to post and blog and so forth, and he should write more about it too. Do you think that Richard refers to you all the time during his talks because you're there in the audience? Well, <laughs> I, I I don't think so because he had slides and pictures of me on slides. It's really kind of disturbing. I wish he would stop doing that <laughs> in some sense. But I think it's kind of nice. It's nice, but it's it's weird. It's it was weird to be in the audience. If I had known he was going to do that, I probably if I had known at all, I wouldn't have shown up. Actually, really? Probably, Are you sure? I think so. I don't know. You always go to Richard's talks. I know, but if I'd known I was going to be on three slides and that that, that like a good chunk of the talk were was they flattering stuff pictures? No, he, he picks these old pictures on the internet for me that are that aren't very good resolution. And he says they're old for a reason, which he said in the talk. I heard him say that, but he didn't say why, did he? To embarrass me, probably. Oh. No, I'm sure not. I mean, mean, most of what he said about you was pretty flattering, so I don't think he did it like it. It would include a picture of you to deliberately embarrass you. I guess that's true. And he also didn't pull the pictures. He could have probably embarrassed you in the substance of the talk in some way if that were his goal. Well, he did catch me in like a John Kerry. I was before it. I was I was for it before. Yeah, but he used that as a way to explain how insightful you are and how (laughs) how long you've been evaluating these issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe a, a, a full, a foolish consistency is a hobgoblin with little minds. Um, I don't, I don't think consistency is bad. I think that if you're consistent for consistency's sake, it's bad. I and mean, you, you have reasons for changing your positions. I actually think that, that people gave John Kerry too much of a hard time. Cause that was over, that well, was over Captain Especially given what's going on with Romney now, and nobody seems to be talking about that, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, but, 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 but I mean, for, but 40, really 47% sucks. of people are not going to vote for him anyway. Oh my God. So <laughs> that was so great. So amazing. Amazing. Uh, but it's what, you know, it's what these people believe. But what's amazing about Romney is that there is, I mean, there's footage of him from years ago saying the direct opposite things of what he's saying now. And nobody is sort of the only people that I can see who are playing this, or, you know, who are showing this are the comedy shows, <laughs> which I, it's crazy. Anyway, well, this is really off topic. So, and I, wrap up. yeah, and I do want to mention one thing. The um, Amarok Project asked me to mention they're doing their month, their once a year fundraiser now. Nice. So they do their their Rocktober fundraiser, which I right. I feel like an '80s DJ when I say, but that's what they call it. And uh, is and it Rocktoberfest? I don't. They just call it Rocktober. <laughs> Uh, they just call it Rocktober. Right. Anyway, so you should donate to the Amrock Project. Go to to Amrock's website and donate to them uh, this month. Uh, and uh, it's there's going to be a special fundraiser thing they're going to do later in the month. That you so you should watch the site. Um, that I don't want to announce now because they're probably not announcing it on the day this comes out. But keep watching their site. And uh, do you have anything about GNOME you want to? Well, there's really cool stuff going on right now, but that's it's already old news by the time this comes oh. out, which is that we're doing, um, we have the Boston Summit is going on right now, um, this weekend, uh, Columbus Day weekend. Um, I don't even know what date it is. Um, and yeah, I unfortunately this, this, had to... The, the Tuesday when this comes out, this will be right after right we finish after, it. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I'm really bummed that I had to miss it, especially since um, we're doing this really cool thing where we're doing like a newcomer's track. Um, and um, 
you know, advertising really heavily at MIT, which is where we're hosting the event. Um, but it's like a really big, um, effort to explain how to get started, how to use RC, how to use Git, um, how to submit your first patch. And there are a lot of people who volunteered for the session to just go around and help people. So I think that's really cool. It's something new that we haven't really been doing before, but it fits in really nicely with our overall increased outreach efforts. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm hoping that we can do that at other universities. So I, that was the first thing that came to mind when you said that, because it's, you know, it's going on now. <laughs> and I bet it's going great. <laughs> so, and, and you'll be able to read about it uh, the day you hear this. So I hope yeah. you do. Um, and, uh, and I'll be at Open World Forum this week. I'm giving four talks. In four three. talks I, I don't know how this happened but i'm giving a keynote and three talks wow congratulations it's kind of weird awesome. it wasn't i think well it, the four talks that's a lot of talks i would not want to give that many talks but the keynote is good maybe you can yeah. fail on the other talks. well no it's I, the problem is that the tracks are the tracks fail. are all separately organized so i ended up on multiple oh, tracks and I so that's see, part of I the see. problem and then the week after that uh, the, are you I'll, giving different talks oh yeah, yeah okay yeah. so and the week after that i'll be at uh, the mentor summit uh for the google mm -hmm. summer of code so if you want to see me in the next month, and I'll be at LinuxCon Europe in November. You won't see me anywhere other than New York City for the foreseeable future. <laughs> well, we'll hopefully uh, have another but, episode yeah. in two weeks. So we're going to do this, Karen? I think weeks? so. Okay. Yeah. So. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Reason Freedom website, faith.us. That's f a i f.us. .us.